Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this awesome privilege of being able to gather together and to worship you and Lord, uh, this time of year, as we begin to think about the birth of Christ, we think about uh, the significance of the Incarnation and um, how you came to uh, earn our salvation and redeem us and uh, free us from sin. And Lord, we thank you for that. We praise your name. Lord, we pray this morning that as we consider uh, how to be people of faith, that we might be people that would emulate these examples from the Old Testament, that we would be people who walk by faith and not by sight, that we would uh, cling to uh, the conviction of things not seen, that we would uh, claim the assurance of things hoped for, that which is uh, certain in your sight because of your promises. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us to receive your word, that we would be ready and receptive and open uh, for what you have for us today. And Lord, that as we worship, that you would be pleased with our worship, that it would be uh, given with a sincere heart of gratitude and praise. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless and that you would uh, work in our midst once again this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Of all the people listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, perhaps there is none greater than Abraham. And to this Jewish audience, there is no question that there would be no one greater than Abraham. So he's given a great deal of attention in this chapter. And from verse 8 all the way down to verse 19, we have this large section on the life of this man. Abraham is the epitome of biblical faith. And perhaps more than anyone else is a picture of the totality of a life of faith. He is the classic example of what it means to become justified by faith and to live by faith. But his faith was severely tested. In fact, in this long passage of Scripture, we see three ways in which God tested Abraham's faith. We saw the first one last time, the test of worldliness. And in order to see this first test, we need to go to verses 8 through 10, and then verses 13 through 16. And those two sections really are connected with each other in regard to thought. The first test of Abraham's faith was to obey God's call to leave his home country and to go to a land that God had promised him, even though he did not know where he was going. He left his country, his relatives, his father's house, in other words, his inheritance, in order to obey God. He left everything that was stable and everything that was known, and he went out not knowing where he was going, but he made this trek by faith. And the moment he understood what God was saying to him, he started packing his bags. It may have taken him a while to get everything ready to actually leave, but from the moment that God called him, he was ready to go. And the application for us, as we saw last time as Christians, is that of leaving the old behind and moving forward to a new life in Christ. All the language of this passage is that of a pilgrim, a sojourner, one who is a citizen of a different realm. And the heart of a pilgrim is that of being willing to leave behind the old and to move on to the new. And of course, the Christian life should be understood exactly in that way as a pilgrim leaving behind the old pattern of life and moving on to a brand new one. So Abraham is a picture for us in this regard. We're to leave the old, we're to move on to the new life in Christ. Salvation also is pictured as a separation from the world. God cannot lead us into new ways of living until he first leads us out of the old ways of living. And so we see the test of worldliness. Worldliness really is, in essence, trying to live just like the rest of the world. And yet, the Word of God declares, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And the more we grow in Christ, the less like the world we will become. And the more mature we become in Christ, the more we will want what God wants instead of what the world is pursuing. We also saw last time that Abraham and the other patriarchs lived by faith as aliens, as pilgrims in the land of promise. They did not have permanent dwelling places, but lived in tents. And even though the land of Canaan was promised to them, they did not own any of it at this particular time. And this is a powerful reminder that faith often requires waiting on God. The promises of God do not always come about immediately. And so Abraham and the others had to pass the test of patience in waiting on God. And, you know, we often struggle with that test because we're so used to instant gratification. But this is an important aspect of a life of faith. God's promises are not always filled quickly and immediately. In fact, God's promises are not always fulfilled even in this life. And this passage tells us that all these died without seeing the fulfillment of the promises. Yet they died in faith, believing that God would still ultimately fulfill them. Genuine faith is deaf to doubt, is dumb to discouragement, and is blind to impossibility. Faith hangs on to the promises no matter how long it takes for the fulfillment of them. And we saw last time that Abraham was looking beyond the earthly to the heavenly. Even more than an earthly city in the land of promise, he was looking for the city whose, uh, which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Not a city, but the city. This is clearly a reference to the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem. It is the city whose architect and builder is God himself. And there's only one city like that mentioned in Scripture. But the amazing thing is, Abraham set his heart on this city thousands of years before there was even an earthly Jerusalem, much less the new Jerusalem described by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And all this ties in with the pilgrim language of this passage. And that is a picture that we see often in the New Testament. For example, Paul declared in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is not in this world. We're not at home in this world Our citizenship is really in heaven. And according to this divinely inspired revelation, Abraham was looking beyond the earthly promised land to the ultimate promised land. 
And this is why he could die still clinging to the promise. He knew his ultimate destiny even if he never saw the promise of an earthly land fulfilled. And because he believed the ultimate promise was certain, he could be patient with God in the fulfillment of the short-term earthly promises. And remember, our definition for faith is found in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not yet seen. Because the eternal question was settled in Abraham's heart, the earthly questions could remain unanswered. He didn't have to understand everything that God was going to do in his earthly life because he was absolutely convinced that all God's promises would be ultimately fulfilled. Faith says, I don't have to know ahead of time what God is going to do because I trust God explicitly. And I know that whatever he does in my life, I know it is for my good and for his glory. The life of faith trusts God to the degree that even if none of his promises are fulfilled in this lifetime, that is still okay because he will ultimately fulfill every promise in eternity. Now, we didn't get this far last time, but verses 13 through 16 are really closely connected in thought with this first test of worldliness. We see the same kind of pilgrim language in these four verses. So look at it with me. Verse 13, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For those who say such things make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The phrase, all these, refers to Abraham and Sarah, as well as Isaac and Jacob. They all died without receiving the promised land. In fact, history reveals that it would be nearly 500 years after the death of Jacob before the Israelites would begin taking over the promised land. But please understand, as John MacArthur explains, Far from being a lament, this statement is a positive declaration that these people died in perfect hope and assurance of ultimate fulfillment. You see, for a person of faith, God's promises are as good as reality. If God says it, that settles it. And notice that all these were clearly looking beyond the earthly to the heavenly. They understood that they would remain strangers and exiles as long as they were on this earth. They weren't looking to return to their former land because if, they, if that had been their goal, they would have 
been able to go back there. But their eyes were completely fixed on their ultimate heavenly home. And think about this. God had not given them his timeline as to when these covenant promises were to be fulfilled. All they knew was that this was God's promise and that was enough. They got a sampling of the promised land, but they never owned it. They walked on it, but they never settled on it. They pastured their flocks on it. They raised their children on it, but they had to remain patient even though they did not possess it. It was enough for them to possess it from a distance. Why? Because they were desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. And in the meantime, they saw themselves as strangers and exiles on the earth. This is how they saw themselves. And this is how we should see ourselves as Christians. And it's interesting because these two terms are not positive ones. In the ancient world, strangers, Zenoi, were regarded with contempt. They were looked upon with suspicion and even hatred. They had very few rights in comparison to citizens of the land. The other term, exiles, is what we would call refugees today. It means pilgrims, sojourners, vagabonds. And yet, significantly, it is because of this perspective that God is not ashamed to be called their God. These are not positive terms from a human perspective, but from the divine perspective, they absolutely are. Listen, the essence of our faith is not based on what we hold in this earthly life. It is based on our ultimate destiny. And it's okay to be a refugee in this world. It's okay to be an alien and a foreigner. It's okay to be despised and seen with suspicion by people in this world. Why? Because this is not our ultimate home. We're just passing through this place on our way to that heavenly city. Our pilgrim's progress is through this world to our heavenly home. And by the way, it's interesting to note that the Greek word for church literally means called out ones. We have been called out from among the world where we do not belong. As James Draper once wrote, we have nothing in common with this sinful world and its antagonism, hatred, and atheism. We have nothing in common with a world that is filled with vulgarity, suggestiveness, filth, cursing, and blasphemy against God. That isn't where our heart is. We have been called out of that, and we, like the patriarchs of old, have eyes of faith with which we can see that there is coming a day when the Lord shall return and establish His eternal kingdom. That's our ultimate home, and that's where we need to set our hearts. 
Now, at that particular time when Christ sets up his kingdom, then all the promises of God that we now see dimly are going to be completely fulfilled. And we see all of this now through the eyes of faith. And yet it is as certain as if it has already taken place. That's what it means to live by faith. We have the same kind of faith that Paul expressed in 2 Timothy 1.12 when he said, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard that which, which I have entrusted him unto that day. Well, we must move on. We need to move on to a second test that Abraham faced, and that is the test of weakness. The test of weakness. Look with me at verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, also, there was born of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now, that's the New American Standard, but in this case, it may not be the best translation. I almost never trust the NIV, but in this case, it may be one of the only versions that gets it right. The NIV reads this way in verse 11, By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had the promise. Now, we know verse 12 refers to Abraham. But I believe that verse 11 also refers to Abraham. And scholars have long debated this. There are a number of reasons for seeing a reference to Sarah in verse 11 or to seeing a reference to Abraham along with Sarah in that verse. But there is one factor that seems to make this an ironclad case for Abraham, and that is the fact that the phrase received ability to conceive in the New American Standard literally means to lay down seed. And obviously, it is men who do that and not women. This clearly points to the father's part in the process of conception. This means that both verse 11 and verse 12 refer to Abraham, not to Sarah. So it could read as it does in the NIV, or it could read this way. By faith, Abraham, in association with Sarah, received power to lay down seed even beyond the proper time of life since he considered him faithful who had promised. Or it could read, as F.F. Bruce has suggested, by faith, he, Abraham, also, together with Sarah, received power to beget a child even after the natural season of life because he reckoned the one who gave the promise to be trustworthy. 
And then verse 12 follows naturally on the heels of that. Now, this also fits better with the reality that Sarah doubted God and laughed at the idea that she could conceive in her old age. Genesis 18, 13 and following makes it clear that her laughter was that of unbelief, even though she denied it. No wonder she ended up naming the baby Isaac, which means laughter. Sarah did not really believe God. In fact, she even tried to fulfill the covenant promises herself by giving Abraham her handmaid, Hagar, to have a child through her. And MacArthur writes, her idea and Abraham's acquiescence produced a son, Ishmael, whose descendants from that day to this have been a plague on the descendants of the son of promise. Ishmael became the progenitor of the Arabs, and every Jew since his birth has faced the antagonism of the Arab world because of Abraham's and Sarah's disobedience. So we would have to say that Sarah's impatience was very costly, but the emphasis in this passage, I believe, is on the faith of the patriarch Abraham, although Sarah was obviously involved. And I believe that the message of the author of Hebrews is on the example of the faith of Abraham and all the ways that his faith was tested and how he passed every test. In this case, the faith was Abraham's and not Sarah's. It was Sarah, of course, who gave birth to Isaac, but it was Abraham's faith that was the vehicle for this supernatural birth. In fact, it is significant to note that it was in this context of Abraham believing God for the birth of Isaac that Genesis 15:6 tells us, "...then he believed in the Lord, and he, God, reckoned it to him as righteousness." It is significant that Abraham's justification came at this point of the exercise of his faith in God. Now, that's not to minimize in any way Sarah's part in all of this. But Sarah is, in fact, uh, even though she's referenced in verse 11, it is likely she's referenced in a, in a secondary role as the recipient of the results of Abraham's faith. So in a very real way, you could say that Abraham's faith was the seed that enabled Isaac to be conceived. But either way, the point here is that Abraham passed the test of physical weakness. Both Abraham and Sarah were too old to have children. Genesis 11.30 tells us that Sarah was barren. She had never had a child and was unable to bear children. So it took a great deal of faith to believe that God would miraculously give them a child under those circumstances. 
And of course, from a human perspective, it was impossible for Abraham and Sarah to have a child. In fact, the Bible says in this regard, Abraham's body was as good as dead. But amazingly, God enabled him to have descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. Every Jew that has ever been born is a result of Abraham passing this test of faith. And he dared to believe God for the impossible, and the rest is history. God had promised to bless the entire world through him, and he believed that promise. And of course, this is a reminder to us that all things are possible with God. Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. That's Matthew 19, 26. He said, all things are possible to him who believes. That's Mark 9, 23. This emphasizes both the human side and the divine side. The power of God on one hand and the faith to trust in God on the other hand. But it's the combination of these two elements that enables us to cry out with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it reminds us in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond all that we can ask or think. Listen, if something is God's will, He is more than capable of accomplishing it through us. But it is faith in Him that is the human trigger. And we must emulate Abraham's faith and believe God for the impossible. And over and over in Scripture, we see where human weakness is no limitation at all for God. In fact, Paul even said, when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Why is that? Because when we understand that we're weak, that's when we totally trust the power of God. When we recognize that we have no ability in and of ourselves to do what God calls us to do, that's when we put our full faith and trust in Him to do what only He can do. But we, too, need to pass the test of weakness. We, too, need to learn to trust God for the impossible. We, too, need to live with the same kind of faith that Abraham had. There's one more test that Abraham faced, and that is the test of willingness. The test of willingness. Look with me at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Now, this is one of the most incomprehensible occurrences in all of Scripture. That a man would offer up his only son, his son of promise, that had been miraculously born to him in his old age as a sacrifice to God. There is... Absolutely no question, this was the greatest test of Abraham's faith. This is the signal 
demonstration of his trust in God. He had been tested in the area of mental reasoning and in physical weakness, but now he would be tested in regard to his heart and his soul. Could he surrender to God that which was the most precious thing in his life? The account is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 22. And verse 1 of that chapter, we see where God clearly intended for this to be a test. There it says, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. You know, Satan tests men to prove them false. God tests them to prove them true. And we see that in the Old Testament with Job, but we also see it here with Abraham. His obedience proved that his faith was real. And amazingly, Abraham obeyed and took his only son and was fully prepared to kill him and offer him as a sacrifice to God. And as you know, God stopped him and he did not have to kill his son, but he would have done it had God not stopped him and provided a substitute. But for us, this kind of faith is just beyond comprehension. How can a father take the life of his own son and offer him up as a sacrifice? I know that I can hardly even imagine doing something like that. There's an old story about a man whose job it was to operate a drawbridge over a large river. And every day he would lower the bridge to allow passenger trains to go across, and then he would raise the bridge to allow ships to go down the river. One day his wife was sick, and so he took his son with him to work. Well, the little boy got bored, and so he went out and wandered around down by the river, and after a while, the man heard a cry of, for help from his son. He had somehow gotten caught in the huge gears that operated the drawbridge. The man immediately began to run to where the boy was, but all of a sudden, he heard the most frightening sound that he had ever heard in his life. The sound of an approaching train. He only had seconds to decide. Would he save the life of his son or the life of those on the passenger train? With heart-wrenching pain, he knew what he had to do. He went back to the controls and flipped the switch on the drawbridge, covering his ears so he would not hear the deafening cries. Of his son. As he looked up, he saw the people on the train going by. 
Some were waving. Most were laughing and having a good time, not knowing that a son had been given to save them. And, of course, we cannot help but to tie this in with what God the Father did in the giving of His only begotten Son for us to die in our place as our substitute on the cross of Calvary. In Abraham's case, a ram was provided by God as a substitute for his beloved son. But in the case of Jesus, no substitute was provided. God the Father actually gave his only begotten son to die. He became our substitute. In fact, we're told in verse 19, back in Hebrews 11, that this was intended to be a type of Christ's ultimate sacrifice. Hebrews 11:19 says, "He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type." The word type in the Greek is the word parabole, from which we get our word parable. And we've already seen this word many times in our study of Hebrews, it is something that points to a greater reality. This entire incident is given as a type of God giving His only begotten Son and then raising Him from the dead in order to provide for our salvation. In the same way that Isaac carried the wood on his back up Mount Moriah. So the Lord Jesus carried the wood of his cross up Mount Calvary. In fact, Jesus himself said something very interesting about Abraham in John eight fifty six. He said, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it. And was glad. Abraham was able to even see the coming of Christ. And it's significant. Abraham believed in the resurrection from the dead long before God ever revealed that doctrine. He believed this because he knew that this would be the only way that God could keep his covenant promise after he offered his son as a sacrifice. Resurrection was the only way that both the command and the promise could be fulfilled. In fact, it's interesting that if you go back to the Genesis account, you see that is exactly what Abraham expected. Genesis 22.5 says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey And I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. Notice the word we in that verse. Abraham fully expected God to raise Isaac from the dead so that they could rejoin the servants who were watching the donkey. But for the purposes of the author of Hebrews... Abraham's faith was proven beyond any doubt when he was willing to offer up his son of promise. 
It was Abraham's faith that was at center stage. This is the example par excellence of the magnanimous faith of one who truly believes God. Abraham was forced into a radical posture of trusting God. And remember, Abraham had waited for many, many years for the promised son to be born. And he knew that the fulfillment of God's covenant through him was dependent on his son Isaac. Because God had told him, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He knew this promise was unconditional and, in fact, offered up his son, believing that God could even raise him from the dead to keep this unconditional promise. In essence, he believed that this was really God's problem. God would have to find a way to keep his covenant even after the death of the promised heir. But the point is, that Abraham's faith was so strong that he believed God would supernaturally work it out. And of course, if God could perform a miracle to allow his son to be born in the first place, then it was no problem for God at all to also perform a miracle and raise him back from the dead. All he knew was what God had commanded. And so he did exactly what God dictated. The perfect tense of the verb offered up shows that in his heart he had already sacrificed his son Isaac before God stayed his hands. Now we know just from a human perspective that this must have been the most difficult decision that he ever had to make. We know that it had to tear Abraham's heart out to do something like this. But interestingly, the author of Hebrews does not even mention that human struggle. To him, it was a matter of whether he chose to obey God or not. And amazingly, Abraham passed this incredible test. You know, if Noah demonstrates the duration of faith, Abraham demonstrates the depth of faith. Abraham passed all three of these phenomenal tests. The question for us is, how would we do with tests like this? How much do we trust God? Abraham died to self and to all his ambitions on the day he was tested. He staked his whole life and eternity on the Word of God. Will we do the same? Do you remember how the New Testament describes those who follow Christ? Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Abraham did. Ron Phillips said, Faith? is willing to go all the way in surrender to Jesus. Paul put it this way in Romans 12:1, I urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship. 
Are we truly people of faith? How does our faith measure up to these kinds of tests? Do we insist that we have to know everything in advance? Do we offer up the excuse of weakness in some way? Are we willing to give up that which is the most precious thing in our life to follow Christ? Jesus gave His all for us on Calvary. The knife of sacrifice and the fire of judgment fell on Him as He died on the cross. Why would we not be willing to put our full faith in Him? When John Bunyan was put in prison for preaching the gospel, he was mostly concerned about his own family. He was particularly grieved over his little daughter who was blind. He had a special love for her. And he wrote in his journal, I saw in this condition I was a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet, thought I, I must do it. I must do it. The dearest idol I have known, what e'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Where do you stand today? Where do we all stand? We are the church. We are the called out ones. We are the believers in Jesus Christ, His followers, His disciples. Are we people of faith? Will we emulate this kind of faith in our day and time? Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning that You will help us to once again just evaluate our own lives and see where we stand. How do we measure up? Could we pass these kind of tests? Lord, I pray that uh, You would help us to learn and to be inspired and to be challenged by these Old Testament examples. Those who had much less light and revelation than we do today, yet they lived by faith. So, Lord, help us to be people in our day and time that also live by faith. Sure, it's challenging. Yes, there is so much pressure in this world to conform. But, Lord, help us to be your people. Help us to be separate. Help us to be unique, aliens, strangers in this world, pilgrims, setting our hearts and our eyes and our minds upon that which is forever. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.